0: Amen. You can be seated. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah 53? So we we come to Isaiah 53, and actually, technically, we're starting in uh, chapter 52, uh, verse 13, and all the way through 53. Um, Maybe you already know this, maybe you don't, but the the chapter divisions in your Bible— um, it's not like Isaiah wrote those as he was going on. These were added much later to scripture. So that the chapter divisions are not inspired. Um, and this might be the, the lamest chapter division ever. Because um, verses 13, 14, and 15 in chapter 52 belong with chapter 53. So when I say 53, uh, know that I'm, I'm including these three verses. Uh, commentators, preachers, uh, just gosh over this passage that we're going to get into today. Um, it's been said that Isaiah 53 is the pinnacle of the Old Testament, that, um, that it is the, the very heart of the Old Testament. Many have called uh, Isaiah 53 the fifth gospel. Luther uh, said that every Christian should be able to repeat Isaiah 53 by heart. Um, here we get just an astonishing description of Jesus, the, the servant that, that, um, that Isaiah has been, has been building and building. He's pulling back the curtain here, and we get Jesus, the Messiah. In this passage, we read about his death, his burial, the resurrection, the coronation, the exaltation, his intercession for his people. We read about salvation Uh, This chapter is so important that almost every verse is somewhere in the New Testament, at least once. Um, Jesus talked about this chapter. The apostles and New Testament authors wrote or uh, they they quoted or referred to this chapter. Uh, We find Isaiah 53 in Matthew, in Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 John. I might have missed some, but it is all over the place. Certainly, uh, after Jesus uh, rose from the dead and he was on the road to Emmaus with a couple disciples, and it says that, that he showed them by the scriptures, all the scriptures concerning himself, certainly he took them to this chapter so we begin in Isaiah 52:13, and it starts with the word, "behold." We would be wise to pay attention to everything that we're going to read here. Uh, this passage, if what it says about Jesus is true, then we would be fools to not pay attention. We could not possibly know these things about God if he didn't reveal it to us in scripture like he does here in Isaiah 53. God is telling us who he is. He's telling us how you can be saved from the curse of sin. God is telling you the only reason that there is for hope. So this behold is an invitation to come and see the servant that God has sent. So he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Act wisely means to act with such wisdom that they will be successful in what they are doing. The servant will accomplish exactly what he is supposed to accomplish. He will not fail. He says he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted Right, both uh, lifted up and exalted on the cross, but also exalted to the right hand of the Father, like he said, in many places, including Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He will be exalted. Continuing in verse 14, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations; kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see; and that which they have not under or which they have not heard, they understand. Verse three or thirteen tells us the end of the story. Verses thirteen, and fourteen, uh, and fifteen. The the that the servant, the Christ, will be exalted. And what follows these verses isn't really what you would expect based on on this proclamation that he will be exalted. Because his exaltation takes a path that really looks nothing like exaltation. We're going to read about the servant who would suffer, not because of his actions, but for the sins of the very people that he would save. And there is an astonishment here that this this one who would be exalted. There's nothing about him that shouts to us, this must be God. He didn't look like like what anyone would have imagined God in the flesh would look like. And, And yet we read that the nations will be astonished as they see who Jesus is. They will be so shocked at his greatness, right? That even the most powerful world rulers, they'll be left speechless they will have nothing to say as they finally see Jesus and who he really is. 53.1 who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we've read over and over again in Isaiah about this arm of the Lord and, and the connotation of, of power, that, that God, the creator of all things, he has the power to save his people. He has the desire to save his people. Verse two says, for he uh, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He he didn't come into the world with the pomp and circumstance that we would expect uh, of someone who is great. He says he's like a young Plant, like this root that pops out out of this dry, arid ground. If, if anything, it looks like a sucker plant, right? And a gardener's gonna come along and, and see what is that thing doing and, and clip it off. There's nothing remotely majestic, nothing royal about him. Certainly you wouldn't see him or, or hear him and, and think, oh, this guy's not just gonna be a king, but he's gonna be the king of kings, Maybe, uh, maybe like me at some point in hearing about Jesus, in following Jesus, maybe as you've read the Gospels, you thought, man, if I could have just been there to see Jesus, how much easier would it be for me to believe? How much stronger would my faith be? Maybe you've had that thought. Maybe you haven't. But the reality is, no, you probably wouldn't. It probably wouldn't have. If you would have saw Jesus in the flesh 2,000 years ago, most of us, almost all of us, would have missed who he was. I mean, I probably would have figured it out, but you guys, no, just kidding. I would have been with the crowd, shouting, crucify. Man, I would have been a Pharisee. I would have been so off about who Jesus is. He didn't look like what we expected him to look like. He didn't come like we, expect, we would expect him to come. He was born to this young, broke couple from a tiny, nowhere town. He, he didn't burst onto the scene that, like we would think God in the flesh would. Right? Before his public ministry, he quietly came to the great, eccentric preacher John, asking him to baptize him. Nothing about his coming looks like the arm of the Lord. Nothing about him or his plan draws us in. In fact, we're repulsed by him and his plan. To us, his plan reeks of weakness. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, right? And those are all words that have already been used in Isaiah to describe his people, to describe Israel, despise sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom it says, men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Despised in Hebrew from what I understand is uh, it's different than our English word. Our English word has this, Uh, emotional component to it, uh, but not so in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it means to consider something or someone and find them to be worthless, find them to be completely unworthy of attention. And this last line, we, we read that he was despised, yet we esteemed him not. I heard someone that put it this way. He said, we calculated him and counted his net worth at zero. You look at him, and from what we read here, you, you can just tell that he's a man full of problems. right? The pain and the sickness that he carries, it, it describes it, that, that it as if he was so bad that if a person was looking at him, they would turn their face a, a, as soon as they look at him. You're just so shocked by what you see. You're embarrassed or, or, or you feel bad or, or who knows what it is, but, but you can't even look. But the irony is is that the problems, the pain, the sickness that we see in him that we're so turned off by, they're all our own. Verse four, surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He bore our griefs and our sorrows, but we miscalculated who he was. We thought that he must have had it coming, he suffered for our sins and, and we didn't understand. Not only do we miscalculate God, we also miscalculate ourselves. Right? We overestimate our ability to take care of ourselves. We underestimate the trouble that we are in because of sin. In verse 3, the servant is misunderstood, calling him a, a man of sorrows and grief, assuming underlying assumption that if someone suffers, that they must have done something to deserve it. Certainly suffering that bad. But now in verse 4, we recognize that the grief and the sorrows that he took on, and he, and he took them on so much so that it appeared to be his own pain, his own grief, his own sorrows. We, we, we realize that these are ours, all of them. If you think that Christ is nothing, that's because he so associated himself With those who are nothing, including you and me. If he appears to you as really not all that great, it's because he has taken on what is actually yours. In Isaiah 53, we come to realize that Christ, he was our substitute. Christ took our place. He suffered what we deserved to suffer. He bore our sin, he bore the consequences of our sin. He suffered. Because we sin, and it's even clearer in verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. It becomes clearer and clearer that the servant didn't just take on sickness for us, but even death. He was pierced and crushed for our sins. And while it's true that the servant suffers with us, we do have to understand that he suffers for us. He didn't simply join us in suffering. He took on the full consequence of our sin. And this is how we're healed. And this line, I think every time I've read it, it's, there's just so much mystery here. It doesn't, it's never added up to me that my healing could come from his wounds. But this is what scripture teaches that it was his suffering, that it was his death that paid for my sin and made the way for my deepest wound to be healed, that I could be reconciled to my creator, the one whom I've rebelled against, whom we all have rebelled against. Verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, And you'll notice, perhaps, that this verse begins and ends with the word all. This is the state of all humanity. And the simile here is that we're like sheep, and uh, that's not a favorable comparison for us. Sheep are not known for being smart. Sheep just want the next patch of grass. Sheep are easily distracted. They're easily scared. They, They don't have an attention span. They're simpletons, and this is what we're compared to here. Each of us thinks that we know what is best for us. We blaze our own way, convinced that we know what's right. It reminds me of the book of Judges when it says over and over again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, you see how much evil is there. But the scary thing is that they thought, they were convinced that they were right. The Lord laid on the servant the sin of all his rebel sheep. The Lord purposely purposely put the sin of his people on the servant, the Messiah. This was his plan, that the righteous would die for the unrighteous. And then in verse seven, the comparison to sheep now shifts to the servant. And we see uh, three elements here in, in these following verses. We see his submissiveness, his innocence, and, and the injustice done to him. Verse seven, he was oppressed He was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So we've had the comparison now of both Uh, people to sheep and the servant to sheep. But how different are the pictures that emerge here? Our comparison, as I said, it's it's only negative. And, And yet the servant's comparison to a lamb is positive. He shares the same nature as us, but as Oswald put it, in him it is transformed. The servant was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. And perhaps as you've read the gospel accounts and, and you've read where Jesus is questioned and accused and, and put on trial, you're blown away like I am that he does not defend himself on trial. It's really hard not to defend yourself, even when there's just a shred of, of, of truth to your defense. I'm sure you've been in a conversation where something's been blown out of proportion, exaggerated, or you've been falsely accused, or, there, or there's a misunderstanding, and, and you're just kind of getting blasted by this other person or group of people, maybe. But you realize that defending yourself won't do anything helpful. In fact, it will probably only be harmful. So you try to sit there and just take it and, and keep your mouth shut. Now, in situations uh, that I've been in like that, for a moment, I can do that. But it gets hard really, really fast. This sense of justice boils up within me. I want to defend myself. Now, usually, what's been exaggerated about me or I've been accused of, there's at least a grain of truth to it. But with Christ, we know that the accusations were totally false. Jesus was not guilty in any way. The lamb led to slaughter in the place of sinful man, did not defend himself, though he had every right to. Israel, back in, in chapter 40, verse 27, they, they protest. Right? They say, God, you've, you've forgotten us. You've not done right by us. The servant, however, does not protest, even though he has great reason to protest. And this is consistent with what we've already seen in in, uh, chapter 42 and chapter 50. And it's exactly what we see when we read of Jesus in Matthew 26 and 27, in Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19, verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was innocent. And I never really thought much about this before, but, but even in his burial, it wasn't fair. It wasn't right. He wasn't treated justly. He was given a grave with the wicked. He should have at least been buried near people that were honorable. He deserved better than to be buried with the wicked because he was not wicked. He was not violent. This line here, there was no deceit in his mouth. That is an incredible statement. I'm sure all of us at one point or another have have talked about someone else and said, that person is is truthful. That is a person of integrity. But none of us have said about someone else. That, that person has never uttered a deceitful thing, that, that no deceit has ever come out of their mouths. This is the kind of righteousness that our mess of sin requires. Otherwise, how could a person suffer for someone else in such a way that it healed that person? Only a person who did not deserve the same punishment could do that. Only a person who had never rebelled against God could bring about reconciliation with God. And just imagine, or maybe you can even remember the first time you read Isaiah 53, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard Isaiah 53 you get to this point, you, we've read about the servant of God that was rejected, that he's been mistreated, that he's put to death, that even in his burial, it's just a slap to the face. Clearly the, search, the servant was righteous like none other. So at this point, you, you gotta be wondering, how could this happen? Right, and, and maybe you ask, God, how could you let this happen to this righteous Person. This is the worst injustice that I've ever heard of. God, why would, let, why would you let this happen to him? And then we come to verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Right? This was no mistake. There was no accident here. This was not an oversight that just slipped by God. This was his will. And the language really leaves no room for doubt. It was God's will that the righteous servant would be crushed. And it becomes clear that this servant's death is a sacrifice. It's a a guilt offering, not for him, but for the people. He suffers for their sin. In verses eight and nine, it looks like Like his life is futile and hopeless, but here we see the success that the servant has. We understand why he would willingly submit to mistreatment and punishment for his people. He shall see offspring, right? Far from being childless, it is by his sacrifice that he gives life to his offspring, to his seed. He will have offspring from every race, from every nation, the servant is able to say, as Jesus did in John 17, 4, to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And this is the, this is the success that the servant was promised in 42, in chapter 49, in 50, at the top of our passage here in 52, 13. His, set, his success is the result of him being the sacrificial offering. And there in this passage there are a lot of arguments about a lot of different things and and it would take me forever to get into them so I haven't even mentioned any of them yet but but I will mention in verse 11 here there's there's some arguments about um, the the phrase by his knowledge and I'm not going to get into the options if you'd like to discuss afterwards I'll, I'll tell you all the ones that I can remember. I don't know if Matt Q's here but uh, he would probably love to talk with all these about with all of these with you. Um, but as, as I've looked into this one, it seems that that by his knowledge ought, ought to be connected with the first line. So verse 11, uh, like this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. And, and my guess is in, in your Bible, it's kind of broken up there, but I think it all flows as... One. So out of the anguish of his soul, soul, he shall see, and you probably have a little note there that it could be he shall see light, um, see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. Or maybe it'll help you to hear it this way, that he shall see and be satisfied by the outcome of his experience, right? That's what his knowledge is, the outcome of his experience. The servant sees that his offering, that all of his suffering, it, it, it's been accepted. There's this sense of accomplishment. And then we read what that accomplishment is, continuing in verse 11. Uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Right? Make many to be accounted righteousness. This sentence is so simple, it's so quick, that it'd be easy to blow right by it. But as we've read through Isaiah, we recognize it, it's, it's been beat into us. What a big deal. The unrighteousness of God's people is right. Chapters one through 39 go into great detail about the unrighteousness of God's people and not just God's people, it's, it's all people. And here in just one sentence, the righteous one makes many righteous because he bears their iniquities. He bears the sin of everyone who will accept his offering. To all who trust in him, he declares before God, you are delivered. Verse 12, It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is victory language. Like finally, we we get to this after knowing that it's coming in in 52, 13 through 15. Uh, This is is exaltation language. The servant has won the victory for his people. He has saved them, right? The victory is so great that the picture here is like a, a, a victory parade. He's, He's coming back to his people. He's surrounded by this great entourage and he's giving out the spoil of his victory to his people. The victory has been won. And then the rest of verse 12 is a perfect summary of what has caused this victory. It says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant willingly sacrificed himself, right? He identified himself with sinners to the point that that he was numbered along with them, dying their death so that they could live. He's the intercessor for sinners. The question of how could God forgive sinners is met in this gospel passage in Isaiah 53. And now the question that remains in my mind is how could God love like this? How can that be possible? Many times we've read uh, in Isaiah about the arm of the Lord, Uh, to, to will and act to save his people. And like I said, there's this connotation of power, the power of what God can do, the power of what God will do to save his people. But my imagination of power looks very different than the power that we see displayed here in Isaiah 53 by the servant. My guess is you imagine power, you think of power differently too. It is really much more astonishing what we read here if the problem is sin and the servant is going to take care of sin in his power, I would imagine that he would come in guns ablaze to crush sin. But his power is displayed in such a different way. The servant is crushed. He battles and fights sin by surrendering his life as, as, uh, as an offering for the guilt of his people. His power is then on display by giving grace and mercy to people totally undeserved. My nature, when I want to take something by powers, is I forcefully take it. I'm going to go conquer whatever this problem is, whatever this enemy is. But Jesus, his power is displayed by laying down his life. What would Jesus do? Well, Not what we would plan. Not what we would guess. The servant lays down his life to atone for sin, and he was successful. He will see his offspring because he suffered for them. Why would you not want the God who would suffer for you? Do you just get caught up in how amazing it is that Jesus, out of his abundant love, would suffer for sinners who choose sin over him? If you're here today or you're watching online and maybe you're skeptical about uh, Christians, about the beliefs of Christianity, pour yourself over this passage. Study this passage. Examine it. Think through what it means that Christians worship the God who suffered not, not for what he did, but willingly suffered for his people I really struggle to come up with a compelling reason to dismiss the God who would do that. But the only possible reason that I can think of is to doubt that anyone actually would do that for you. And certainly that God would do that for you, the creator of all things. How could it be that God would come down, that he would take on flesh, that he would willingly not only die for you, but live for you, right? And we didn't even get into this, but you ever think about all the inconveniences pre-cross that Jesus experienced just by being human, that he would endure all the ailments that are part of human life, right? Stomach aches, uh, stubbing your toe in the dark, migraines, shin splints, uh, splinters, sleepless nights, emotional strife with people. I mean, we can go on and on and on. God chose to come down and endure all of that even before the cross because we needed someone who could take our place to suffer for our sin. And it's hard to wrap our mind around God doing that for sinful man. If it wasn't in the Bible, I don't, I don't know how I could believe it. And yet here we are reading what God said he would do 700 years before he did it. So if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, please understand that what we have in Isaiah 53 is a savior who laid down his life for you because he loves you. His death was sufficient to pay for your sins. And, and maybe you'd question, like a lot of people do, I mean, do I really need someone to die for my sins? And, and here's a simple answer. Jesus wouldn't have done it if it weren't necessary. If sin wasn't a big deal, or if there was another way, he wouldn't have died an excruciating death for you. He wouldn't have walked the earth for 30 years. He would have no reason to suffer for you if it were not necessary. But it was necessary, so he did. He died in the place of his people. He rose from the dead, which tells us that his payment for sin was sufficient. By his death and resurrection, he has made a way to restore fellowship between God and those who turn to him in faith. If you have trusted in Jesus, um, here, here, a couple pieces of application for you. And I didn't come up with these myself. Uh, I actually, I was listening to basically what was a devotional on Isaiah 53. I didn't even catch the guy's name, but, but what he said was so good. It's all I've been able to think about in response to this passage. He said something along the lines of, don't, don't settle for a blurry vision of Jesus, for a blurry understanding of the person and work of Jesus We should strive to know the person of Christ. We we would all do well to make it our goal to know Christ better than any other person that we know. Don't settle for this this vague knowing about Jesus. And then the second is also get to know his work. Read the Bible like you would read the explanation of, of this incredible inheritance that you're going to get. If I was just inheriting riches upon riches, I would read line by line. I would want to know the fine print. We must, we must come to Scripture that way. As, as God's people do, have an incredible inheritance. We need to read line by line and understand what Christ has done, what he's doing for you now, what he will do for his people. We should scour the Old Testament to see, to understand how it reveals the Christ, how it points to Jesus. We ought to pour through the New Testament to know who Christ is and what he has done for us. We, we want to make sure that our understanding and that our picture of Jesus is as clear as possible. We want to see Jesus in high def. I'm going to close with the Spurgeon quote that I also heard uh, this week. It says this, My soul, never be satisfied with a shadowy Christ. I cannot know Christ through another person's brains. I cannot love him with another man's heart. I cannot see him with another man's eyes. I am so afraid of living in a second-hand religion. Lord, save us from having borrowed communion. No, I must know him for myself. Oh God, let me not be deceived in this. I must know him on my own account. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we... We thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the clarity of Isaiah 53 Uh, because if it wasn't that clear, Lord, I'm just not sure how we could believe, how we could understand. God, I I thank you for this description of the servant. We thank you that, that Jesus came that he died for us, Lord, that he rose from the dead, that he's ascended to be with the Father that he offers to anyone who would receive him as Lord. He offers reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins. God, we praise you for that. Lord, would we be a people that live in light of Isaiah 53? Would we be a people that know where our hope is, a people that that recognize that we We need to live like exiles in this life because this is not our home. Jesus, we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.